This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 558. And the quote of the day is, to exist is to change. To change is to mature. To mature is to go on creating oneself endlessly. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming. And beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey yo, what's happening out there in quarantine world? I hope that I hope that everyone is doing well. I hope that you're you're trying to stay sane and and uh, and also stay safe. I hope you and your loved ones are safe as well. Um, you know, I, I I'm looking at the good out of, out of all these things, and I know that for myself, I'm getting a lot of practice in and doing a lot of stuff that I've been putting off, and I urge you to do the same. And I know that everyone's talking about that. The one thing that that is sort of uh, confusing me is everyone is putting out their their how to survive the quarantine and and all these other things 20 tips to help you survive how do they know they've never been through it before either so whatever works for you you do you don't try to listen to what everyone else tells you what to do i will say though if you're in this quarantine i don't think you should just lay on the couch and watch netflix for uh for the next you know for 30 days or 45 days or however long this is going to be so again i hope you're safe and i hope that you're you're staying sane and uh this will all be over soon but in the meantime the interviews are going to keep coming because we can do a lot of these remotely and and people are home and and so it's it's actually a little easier to book some of these interviews. So, uh before we get into it, I want to talk about quickly my friends over at Dream Symbols. And I know that right now money is on everyone's mind and if you are looking to pick up new symbols and and you don't want to break the bank, you don't have a ton of cash to spend, Dream Symbols is the answer. I mean, whether you have a ton of cash to spend or not, you can get great sounding symbols from them at amazing prices. So check them out. Go to dreamsymbols.com. They've been working with me here on the podcast for a long time, and I love them over there, and they make amazing sounding symbols. So check them out. Go to dreamsymbols.com. All right, let's get into this conversation with Mike Marsh. Mike Marsh is the original drummer for Dashboard Confessional, played on all their records, did all the tours, played all around the world, doing all of those things. As if that wasn't enough, uh, he gets a, a random phone call from Rick Rubin to do an Avid Brothers session and ends up recording with them and now is the full-time drummer for the Avid Brothers. So seemingly having two careers uh in in one lifetime which is amazing and he talks all about that in the decisions that he that he made and how he made them and and the difference between you know dashboard and the avid brothers and and there's a lot of stuff in here to unpack and talks about going through the ups and downs of being a musician and all of that so just an amazing conversation i'm so happy that we could make this happen so let's not waste any more time getting into it with mike marsh Mike Marsh, how are you, buddy? I'm great, Nick. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course, of course. It's crazy. The you know, obviously, given the circumstances, there's um, a lot of times these interviews. Sometimes they take you know three months or six months or a year to line up, you know, because of people's schedules and they're on the road. And and now, you know, unfortunately, but fortunately for the for the podcast and for the listeners, I you know, I'm talking to people and they're like, uh, I can do it tomorrow. Or Friday or Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, everyone's schedule is just has just opened up and I'm not big on focusing on on negatives. 
so I'm like, at least we're going to get some great conversations out of this, and and you know we can inspire some people who are all who are all quarantined with us. Yeah, I hope so, man. I truly do. It's a crazy time right now, man. I just can't. You know, I I get home from a run, and um, let's say for instance, like we usually the Aver Brothers usually kind of stop sometime in November. Occasionally, it's very early December that we'll do a show or two, but. I usually have December, January, and February off mm-hmm. almost almost every year. And um, last year, I you know, not to get super personal or crazy, but last year I actually fell into some like heavy, like seasonal affect, like depression. Like really, yeah, things got kind of strange for me. Like I started feeling like, oh man, I'm gonna sell all my shit and you know, fuck this fucking music thing. And like, it was dark, like really dark. I've never felt it before. Why do you You think that, why do you think that was? You know, I don't know. I, you know, cause this year it didn't, it didn't hit me like that. Like I got a little kind of bummed and started eating shitty stuff. And, and I was like, wait a second here. I can't, I can't be doing this. Like I'm 45 years old. I have to like take care, <laughs> take of, care of myself. Well, and you know, and also just the, the demands physically as a drummer, like, you know, yeah. we got to take care of ourselves. Um, but Last year, I really don't know what it was. There, there didn't seem to be any real difference in in anything, like whether it's emotional or like I didn't have like my mom wasn't going through anything weird. Like right. my wife was fine. Like my kids were good. Like I didn't I didn't feel anything other than just like this darkness that was coming over me. That I was like, God, like I'd come down into my studio, which is like my dojo. It's like where my where like my 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 peace room you right. know yeah and i work i work for hours on end down here writing my own material working with other artists whatever it is and i just could not want i just wanted to be anywhere but near music for like a couple months like Man. i was actually in the middle of making a record and i i had to tell people like look look i gotta like i gotta stop like you know we, let's just cut the vocals right now let's just turn everything down like turn everything off. You go home. I need to like collect my thoughts. We'll come back in a couple days. Kind of wow. weird shit. I, yeah. well, I, to, it's actually not weird because I literally just posted something on Instagram, maybe a week and a half ago that I did not sit behind a kit for one year. Wow. One year. Yeah. And I was the same way. I was like, I don't like, it was weird because I was still doing the interviews and and the and I always look at these as conversations, and the and I love these conversations. And even when I was doing the like having the conversations, I was like, these are these are great. I love having these conversations. But then yeah. as soon as I would get off the the conversation, or you know, or, or you know, turn off the recorder, I'm like, I don't feel like playing drums. I don't feel like practicing. I have no desire to go out and tour or play. In like, I just didn't want to at all. And I was building an, another, or, you know, still I have two other businesses. So that are music related. So I was like focusing on them. Um, but for some reason it was just, it was gone. And that's like, I mean, and if you're cool with it, like I'd love to even unpack it a little bit more because now it's the complete yeah. opposite where I'm like, I feel like I'm 15 again. And I'm like, I can like, I'm like every, anything that has anything to do with drums or music. I'm so, I'm I'm so passionate about it now where I'm like, you know, I'm like hitting shit around on my desk and I'm like, everything is like uh, inspiring to me now and everything. I love it. Um, but that just happened like a well, month email, ago. Email me some of that, some of that mojo, man. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm, I'm feeling fine now, you know, I mean, I, it's, it's amazing. Um, what, uh, what this has done 
this 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 whole like coronavirus thing because that's kind of what i was getting at was that now we're sort of like forced into staying home in a sense like of course we can leave our house if we if we are brave enough to do so <clears throat> but um being forced into something does something to me strange mentally like i yeah. feel like you know, I'm, I'm, I'm up i'm like exercising again i'm like eating good food i'm like cleaning up my studio getting reorganized like taking apart all my electronics and like spraying all the connectors and like wanting to like just revive everything i'm about to set my i, I literally tore down all my microphones wrapped up all my cables like vacuumed i mean i'm getting ready to set my kit back up like work on my tuning. I want to learn how to fucking speak Spanish. Right. Like I, I just feel, I feel great right now. Like I feel really good. And, and it's interesting because this is the time of the year when I start to tour. Mm -hmm. And I think my body, it's kind of like, you know, when you, when you, you set an alarm for a really long time to get up for work and then eventually you just stop because you're waking up 15 minutes before the alarm goes off. Right. right. Yep. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's how I'm feeling right now. Like I'm feeling like my body is used to me getting my ass in gear right now. And, and, and I feel just like, I'm so happy to be locked in because I've got all this shit that I need to do and want to do all the stuff that so you quote important. unquote didn't have time for before. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. stuff I just put off. I mean, honestly, like even just like, you know, unplugging all my, you know, taking all the XLRs and all the, all the, 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 DB25s out of my all the connectors, like taking everything out, spraying them, wiping them down, getting all the dust out, like making sure there's no like scratchiness on my compressors, like none of my preamps, making sure my my microphones are like dusted off and put away properly, like make sure my ribbon mics are upright and not sitting sideways, mm -hmm. like all this shit that I just like lose sight of when I'm, I'm sort of in the motions of everything. Right. And even furthermore, when I'm just kind of feeling dark and, and shitty, like that last year was crazy, man. Like I would come down into my studio and see my drum set up and just be like mad about it. Like I was just <laughs> I, mad that I was a drummer or like mad that that was my life or what it, it was such a strange thing. And honestly, once tour season started, I was fine again, but, um, and even even more than that, like when when I, when I'm getting ready to gear up to go play shows, like I cannot wait to get back on stage with these guys and gals. Like it's right. it's so exciting to be in this band. So for me to feel that way for even a minute was really scary, man. Like I was like, what is going on? Like is is this like is this like old timer shit that I'm going through? Like am I really getting to be like am I scrooging out? Like am I becoming this right. like what do you what do you what do you think that it was because i have I, like i have my own I, I have my own sort of take on it um, yeah but but i'd love to hear hear your take like why why you think that was happening uh because i think it's to i think it's normal and i think that if you're in yeah. this industry long enough uh whether you do it full-time part-time all the, I, that doesn't that to me i'm like whatever we're all drummers it doesn't matter to me um and so Oops. i think this is all i think it's all natural but I'm, i, I want to hear what you have to say about it well, I, I think it's so let me just give you a, a little bit of background. So I, I am completely sober. I've never had a cigarette, sip of alcohol, drugs, nothing ever in my life, like mm -hmm. not anything like total square, dude. And I feel like and, I, and I've read a lot about this with drug addiction and any kind of addiction that when that when the applause is gone and the and the adrenaline of playing shows 
and being psyched about music is quote unquote gone and your year your year is coming to an end the dust is settling that there's this withdrawal that happens mm-hmm. and I, I i can really only equate it to that like i feel that that is my high like being on stage playing music that i love being with people i love just simply getting to swing my sticks at stuff like that is completely my high and when that dust settles man it's like whether i want to admit it or not like my brain does something, man. Like my, my body, my emotions, like I miss it. I feel like I'm longing for something that I'm not going to be able to get from, for a few more months, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. like not in that way. Like I'm still able to come down and, and, and record and create and be, you know, be musical. But there's something about the, like the rush of playing shows and being a part of that community that when it's gone for even a couple of weeks, things start to get strange for me. Yeah. You know? Yep. And I, I don't, I don't know if that's kind of where you're at with it, but I just feel like it's, it's something that, that there's just something lost when it's not in my life. Mm-hmm. For me, I, I, I went through sort of a transition. I think that's what happened with me. So I was in a band for a really long time uh, that I grew from nothing to like a full touring band where we played, you know, all over the country for, I don't know, 15 years or something like that. Then, uh, after that, I I did a solo project, and and so I had all these like things that I was working on, and then after that, I started doing the sideman thing. I didn't enjoy the sideman thing, and then I was in this like weird gray area where I was like, okay, I don't want to be a sideman. I'm not. I don't have a band now. I'm starting this other company, and then so every time I would go in to practice or play, I was sort of like, I don't really see the point in doing this, and it was sort of like it almost began to feel like a waste of time. Yeah, And then I was like pissed off at myself for wasting the time. And then I was in, you know, then in turn pissed off at the drums and it would go into like this vicious cycle. Cyclical, yeah, cyclical thing. Yeah. And then the times that I was practicing were getting fewer and further between. So every time I would go in, I would like, I would be like, oh, I feel like I sound like shit. And then, so it became like this, this negative feedback loop. And then, so then I just stopped. Like I packed all my, not, I didn't like. I didn't quit, but I packed up all my drums and, you know, everything was in storage. I didn't have a, and then I, I moved. So I was like, I'm not going to get a practice spot or anything. And, uh, I always had the practice pad in my, in my office here and, you know, I'd sit on it for five or 10 minutes. Um, and then I don't know, like one day I just felt the itch again, you know, and, and had some great conversations and found a place to practice, set my gear up you know, started playing again. So I really hit in the pad. And now I find myself like spending, you know, an hour going down the rabbit hole on YouTube or, you know, like looking at all these different videos. I'm like, man, I didn't do, I, I haven't done this since I was, you know, 20, 21 years old. Right. And, uh, so now it's back. And I think my realization through the whole thing was just because you're passionate about something or, you know, that you, if you love something, that passion can, can wax and wane. And when it does, you may go into other things. You may get into cooking for a little while or learning a new language, like you said, or, or, you know, for me, it was like running, starting these businesses and growing these businesses. But then if you come back to this thing that you've always loved and, and your intentions are pure, that I think that that love will be there still. And that's been the case for me anyway. So, yeah. And it it always goes there for me. I always get back to a place where I'm like, oh, the breath of fresh air, where the the release of like, wow, I'm back and Mm -hmm. I'm feeling healthy again. And I'm just so psyched to be holding these sticks in my hand. And 
and even more so like just so stoked to be on stage with these people and be back on the road with these lovely people again with these beautiful songs like it it, it all it all comes back around there's and, and honestly that's kind of where i've been able to sort of manage the dark hours is knowing mm-hmm. that this is going to this is a means to an end it's gonna it's gonna fall apart at some point and everything's gonna be okay the sun's gonna come out and and i'm gonna be fine and that's that's always been the case. And, and I, I, am just really trying to like, I'm, I'm also an artist. I paint. Um, I, I love to cook. I mean, you know, I've got kids, uh, you know, I've got this, rec- this recording studio. It's, it's, there's so many things that I can really do with my time mm-hmm. that just last year was, I just didn't feel capable of any of it. I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, I was of course still cooking for my family, but and things like that. And just trying to be an engaged dad and, and, and doing the best I could with that. And I feel like I've very sort of seldomly fallen short on that. I feel like I've, I've done a very good job of, of maintaining that. And that's, I think that's the biggest goal when you've got kids. And so everything else has to be put to the back burner mm-hmm. regardless of what it is. So I've, I've always been able to sort of pull my head out of my ass when it comes to that. But, um, with music and art and anything that that's sort of my my true the the fire in me was just it was like hideous to me man i didn't find any beauty in it at all like Mm. it sounded like noise like everything just felt like noise for a while and i and i i've never felt that before and i have not felt that since and i god do i hope i don't ever go back to that again but man it was it was real dark and and i i'm just doing everything i can now with this this COVID thing to, to be just to, to stay active, you know, like mm-hmm. I, you know, even being on Instagram for me last year. And I don't know if you go through this with Instagram, but I find myself stumbling upon videos of, of people that I, that I truly admire. And I kind of get mad at how good they are, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it just pisses me off. I'm yeah. like, yeah, fuck this guy with his, you know, whatever playing over the, the bar line as easily as he wants. You I was know? just watching or some Nate, some Nate it's, Smith it's, videos, and I was I was feeling some of that. <laughs> yeah, it's just like you know. It, no, I love that yeah. dude. He's so. I mean, he's just he's so good. They're incredible. You know, you know him, and, and you know Carter Mack, and 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 you know, there, there's all these guys out there that are that are they're, they're just so good, and it just seems like sort of all encompassing with drums. Like even like hearing his tuning, and like I'm just like fuck you man yeah. <laughs> god you're so good at everything and um and and you know and, and now i look at it and, and now i listen to it when i'm in a, in a healthy space and i'm like like i want to know this guy like i want to i want to like be this dude's friend i want to like i, I you know I, like i want to learn from this person mm-hmm. you know and, and or share with this person like maybe even like i don't know do something back and forth create some music together like but man, when I, when I'm in that dark place, I'm just like, man, this stuff makes me so angry. Like yeah. I just get so mad at it. And, and this stuff that, you know, and all the, you know, the stuff that people complain about, about all the, the, the guys playing over the bar line and, and, you know, the gospel chops and the, you know, guys playing cover songs, like, you know, what, whatever with that stuff, man, like, I, I don't, I don't care what someone's going to do with their time with music. Like if that's how you're going to figure your shit out then you know you go right on ahead and do that as long as you're not forcing anything on me or anyone else Mm -hmm. like i my my only concern with that and i've said this many times on the podcast is i don't want people to mistake it for something that it's not 
And that's my biggest thing. Absolutely, man. And I'm like, if you want to play 300 beats a minute and you want to play all over the bar line and, and have 97 symbols, like that is totally cool with me. (laughs) I like, I don't care. I'm like, awesome. Like, I hope you, I hope that you enjoy it. Like you can't do that and say, I'm trying to get the John Mayer gig. Absolutely. That's all. That's it. And like, that's, that's my thing. I'm like, just don't confuse it for something that it's not. But if like that thing, whatever that thing is, if you get joy out of that and it brings other people joy and it inspires people to play music, do it, man. Like go do that thing, do it up, you know, but like my, my fear is that 12 year olds are going to see someone playing all this crazy shit around the drums. And they're like, oh, that's what you need to do to be a professional drummer. Or that's what you need to do to be a successful drummer. And I, so I just, I always try to like, I want to get that message out about making that distinction. That's all. Yeah. Well, so, so here's the thing. And this is, this is where the, the lines get blurred for me. So when I was started playing drums, I was, I, I believe I was 13 and I lived in an apartment complex and I was really big at the time into listening to whatever my brother and my mom listened to. My mom was really into like journey and foreigner and REO Speedwagon, And mm-hmm. she listened to some soul Al green and, stuff like that the temptations i mean there there was always something playing on the radio uh, on, on the turntable and my brother was really into classic rock he'd listen to led zeppelin all the time and pink floyd and you know he, he even listened to metal he listened to like metallica and stuff like that um and i would i would borrow records or even steal records from my brother and my mom and and listen to them and i was always tapping on my legs and so on and so forth and uh, um I was playing snare drum and it was, I think it was eighth or ninth grade. I was playing snare drum in the school band. And as I'm sure, you know, like every 32 bars, you get to hit the snare once. And it's just <laughs> fucking miserable, you know? And, I, and meanwhile, I'm looking over. At it's the just guy a bunch playing. of lines with a black <laughs> block in it. You're like, that's the, all right. That's right. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. I'll be over here. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I would watch this, like the, the kid playing drum kit and be like, fuck, I want to do what that kid's doing. You know? Yeah. I was always just so enthralled by it. Now, you know, my dad played drums. I didn't know my dad growing up. I still don't know him. So I, I, I was never taught by him, but my mom would tell me about him being a drummer. So I knew that there was some type of lineage there. There was some type of urge in my blood. And, um, the, the thing that turned me on the most was watching mtv you know i'd Mm -hmm. watch the police and you know of course i'd watch like the song remains the same video and try to i would just geek out about john bonham and and so on and and all these all these drummers all the 80s stuff was was big for me and then one day um i ended up getting a drum i begged my mom about it uh about getting a drum kit because um i actually went after school to miss johnson who was putting me on snare drum and i asked her if i could play drum kit she put me behind the drum kit it felt pretty natural. I was doing okay. And she asked me to come back every day for a few weeks. And if I did, if I was showing progression that she'd put me on drum kit. Well, fast forward a few months, she put me on drum kit. I begged my mom for a kit. She bought me one. And my brother gave me moving pictures uh, from, from Rush. And it fucking changed my life. Yeah, Like completely changed my life. I was like, wait, I was like, wait a minute, you can, wait, you can do that on a drum set? Like, <laughs> I had never heard anything like that before. Like, it, yeah. it it almost didn't even register as, like, one person doing it. It just seemed so 
alien to me. And uh, of course, I, you know, I, I started collecting everything that Rush had, and I just became the biggest Rush geek ever. You know, learning every lick, learning what drums he played, what sizes he played, what heads he used, you know, what drums he was playing at the time. Was it Slingerland? Was it Tama? What, you know, like everything. I, I just geeked out. Posters all over my walls. Mm. All I, dude, all I listened to was Rush for years. And a lot of people talk about, you know, Neil Neil's lack of groove or his, you know, this sort of staleness about his playing, you know, people that are like groove meisters, I've heard them talk about how, well, you know, Neil's this very sort of linear type guy. He's, you know, he's, he's very sort of official about his drum parts. There's not a lot of improvisation and all these kind of things maybe aren't necessarily negative, but they, to me at the time, I was just kind of like, fuck you, man. Neil's the best dude. Like he's got this and he does that. And like, right. have you heard the shit on this song? <laughs> And man, I would just go so crazy about it. And a lot of people talk about how, of, of course, them being Rush being a prog rock band and the, the their sort of lack of true mainstream success, which I think can also be argued, right? I mean, they they yeah. did. I mean, they I did. don't. I, I guess like. I don't know how do you how do you say someone's not main like if you look at a band like Fish right you're like okay they they don't have mainstream success I'm like they sold out 13 nights in a row at Madison Square Garden like <laughs> right I don't right. like if that's not mainstream success then then I don't know what is so I would say the yeah. same about Rush like they can Absolutely. play any they could have played anywhere and sold out a stadium in every yeah. state in the in the country like I don't know how much more mainstream do you need. <laughs> Right. So, so here, so here's the thing. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. Here's the thing. Neil Peart to me then is the Instagram shredders to these kids now, kind of mm. in, in a way, in a way there's something, there's something that's happening there that I think is, is going into a headspace of like, holy shit, you can do that. Do you like think it's going to change the the landscape of music? Like, do you think people are like, that's going to, that style of drumming is going to make its way into mainstream music? No. And, and it, it, well, I think it already has in a way, because if you go to see somebody like Beyonce or Rihanna, where these like total like gospel chop rippers are playing, mm -hmm. those guys, those guys fucking rip through the whole night. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I remember Brian Fraser Moore with Usher years ago, and Aaron Spears too. Like Aaron Spears, man. I mean, and uh, like that Usher gig was a choppy gig. That was a choppy gig but for here, sure. But, but here's the thing: those guys can also lay it the fuck down. Yeah, if yeah. they need to. Yep. And yep. I, I think that so for me, when you know, I started early on playing in kind of pop punk bands and. Um, real aggressive, like Southern California to like no effects, lag wagon-y type stuff mm -hmm. where it was, you know, boop, 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 like super fast stuff, drum fills everywhere. And, and my, the band I was in called the agency, like we were trying to sort of incorporate some of the prog stuff that we'd learned from, from rush and King Crimson and yes, and the police and primus and all these bands. Like we were trying to incorporate some of that stuff while trying to also maintain a hook and an aggression that that um that, that turned us on that, that mm -hmm. got us really excited about the music and it honestly i would show up to 
so at the time when I was living in Miami playing these shows, there was a, a, a club called Cheers. And that club was where everybody who was anybody played a gig. And honestly, anybody who was nobody played a gig because right. the, the owner, the owner, Gay Levine, was um, just wonderful to, and supported the local scene with her whole heart. It was like anyone who wants to play a gig, you come on and do it. And I, I saw some really shitty bands play there and I saw some <laughs> incredible bands play there and and everything in between. And, you know, I. I with 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 the scene in Miami and the way things were going th there was there was everything going on down there as far as punk rock and, and I was going to ask was the, there a big know, the, was there a big punk rock scene in Miami then there was for quite yeah. a while man yeah. especially when when cheers happened i don't even remember how many years that was i mean i would say somewhere between 5 and 10 years cheers was open and literally every every band that could play a 500 or three or 400 seat club would come and play. Hmm. And I saw, I saw bands like into another and Jawbox and Jawbreaker, uh, Snapcase, the refused Lagwagon. I mean, everybody came through that venue. Wow. So it, it was the place to be. And then of course, bands like mine would play, but you know, I, I would show up to that, to a punk rock show, listening to like return to forever. <laughs> and chick korea and shit like yeah, yeah, i was yeah. such a nerd about drums like i wanted to learn about chops and technique and fluidity and like that stuff was really important to me and i was also working at a drum shop at the time resurrection drums and mm -hmm. it's now in hollywood florida how and, are you finding um, out about all that stuff then because it's not like now like you just go on the internet and you find it and people talk about it and whatever but like you know you and i grew up in a similar time where you know, you had to buy a DVD or you had to get a magazine in the mail or yeah. you had to like, you, you had to know, or you had to have someone hipping you to all this stuff because no one is finding King, King Crimson just on their own in 1985. No, it's not. You know? And I think that's, I think it's a chain link thing. Like I think, you know, Zeppelin led me to rush that led me to King Crimson that led me to yes. And, um, working in the drum shop for me was where I really found like, wait, holy shit, there's actually drummers that are even better than Neil Peart, technically. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, wait, wait, what? You know, so that that's where I found, um, I think I, I heard you talking in an, in another podcast about the 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 Vinnie Weckl, Steve Gadd thing. Yeah. Like, I remember seeing that and being like, wait, who are these guys? They've got like mullets and like, they're, <laughs> yeah. they're flying all over the drum set. Like, and, and so, you know, that stuff led me to like, steely dan and and the chick Corea electric band and then the stuff that Vinny was doing mm -hmm. uh so all, all that stuff just started to to kind of come into my repertoire like i start i started buying those records and like slowing them down on my record player so i could hear each individual hit you're yeah. super slow and know how many how many beats or how many hits were in that drum fill or groove that that person was playing mm -hmm. um now you so, just click a button on youtube <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Slow it you know? down. <laughs> um, but, you know, I really do. There, there's something to be said. And you hit the nail on the head earlier when you said that as long as it's not misconstrued, because I I had to learn the hard way. Because when I, when I started playing drums um, kind of professionally, you know, I, I had met I had met Chris Caraba and he he was in my band for a while, the agency. And then he started sending me these little are giving me these these cdrs with with acoustic songs on them he's like you can tell me what you think and that was to become dashboard confessional and you know 
I had waited a really long time to like pull out the, some of the dynamics that I had learned from all this like geeky drum shit. Mm -hmm. Like I wasn't able to do that stuff in the punk rock bands. I was playing too fast and too aggressively. Like you, you cannot play, uh, you know, six stroke rolls or buzz rolls or any paradiddles stuff like that stuff. You don't hear that stuff with that music. It's right. not there. Right, you know? right, and right. I've never really, I've never really been a big, like uh, plethora of plethora of knowledge when it comes to, to, to rudiments. I just know what I hear and I know what I see and I try to learn them. I can't tell mm -hmm. you what they are, but I know, uh, I, I know how to do some of them. So anyway, fast forward a little, a little bit. I ended up, you know, starting touring with that. And I, did you have any it, idea that it was going to turn into what it turned into with dashboard? Uh, oh man, man, I, I gotta be honest with you. I told my wife, my wife is the one who actually kind of talked me into doing that gig. If I'm honest, because when I first heard Chris's songs that way, I was like, why doesn't this pussy just pick back up a, a, a Les Paul and play these rocks? These, these are rock songs. <laughs> like these are rock songs. What is he doing? And then, you know, and that was my immaturity at the time. Like I just, I, I just wanted to be aggressive. Right. How old were you at the time? I was 25 when I, when I first started listening to, to Chris's music Okay. and then 20, 26, when I started like touring with him, mm -hmm. you know, jumped in, jumped in the van and you know, we're going to make it man. Like, yeah. yeah, let's do this. And then it was like and getting on a rocket ship. I'm sure. Yeah. You know, it kind of, it's, yeah. you know, the first, the first the first three years we did 900 shows. Wow. We were never home, dude. 900 like, shows in three years. We did 900 shows. We Holy would come, shit. dude, we came home from a tour and I, Chris would be like, all right, I'll see you in a month. And then he'd call me like two days later and be like, Hey, we're leaving in a week to go out with Hey Mercedes. We're leaving in wow. a week to go out with the anniversary. We're leaving in a week to go out with, you know, rival schools. And you know, it was like, it I was doing never, 200 shows a year and I thought that was a lot, man. It never, it just never stopped. 300. There's 300 shows. That's insane. I've never heard anyone play that many shows in a year, man. It was nonstop. I mean, we were so hungry. Like You're all home, of us like what a week, a month. Yeah. You know, maybe. And I was, I, dude, I was newly married, man. 2000. I mean, 2001, I was fucking, I just got married. Wow. You know, and it, my wife was in a band and she was starting to tour. I mean, it, it, it just got, it got, it got gnarly for a while. We, everything's fine now. Everything's cool. Um, but, but you know, even my marriage was suffering. I mean, it was just like, I mean, of course it was right. Yeah, you can't you're, I mean, you're not home, you know, you're not married. Right. <laughs> I mean, you're married, but you're, yeah, you know, and, it's and like, and then I'd come home, I'd come home from a tour and she'd be leaving for a tour. So it was, right. she was right. in, in this like emo rock band called the remedy session. What does she play? And she plays bass. Oh, cool. Cool. And that band is, is kind of like, unofficially back together i play drums for that band now and we've made records in my studio or recorded songs and stuff but amazing so i you know the the, the dashboard thing was yeah like af after after all the that really heavy work had been had been done um it you know it it, it just the spark ignited mm -hmm. and and that and I, I don't really know any other way to say it it just got and all of all of the trials and tribulations of that ignition were there mm -hmm. all, all of it like just the, the the craziness of like becoming a a rock star and and being in a famous band and the you know mtv music award and uh, this like all this like silliness that just starts to become like kind of noise like you're just yeah. like oh holy shit you know people are like tapping on your shoulder in the mall and 
you know, did it mess with your head at all? Yeah, it absolutely did, man. Like I was so young. Mm -hmm. I was just, I was an idiot with it. Like I, I didn't, I didn't know what the hell was going on, man. It was just like, and you asked me a question about like, did I even know it would become that? And you know, when I, when I started doing this, I said, I was like, I'm going to give this a year because like, I don't love this. Like I like it, like I like it. And, 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 you know, Chris and Dan and I were friends and, and it, it was, it was cool. I was like, you know, this is my chance to like play some cool shit. Like I mm-hmm. can like really like construct cool drum parts and be like super dynamic with this stuff and pull from all these influences. And it was just so, it was on fire, man. It was so fun. And, um, and then, and then it was like, oh wait, now we have like commercial success. And, and, and then there was, there was that chase, this like sort of formulaic chase that happens for songwriters mm-hmm. when success happens and this chase to like, keep it alive and to keep the money there and to keep us on the road and to pay this and to pay that. And man, I mean, I can go on a big, long, dark road with that stuff, but man, it, I mean, I, I, I have fond memories of being in that band but it was in the first three or four years of being in that band. Yeah. That's it. Like, honestly, what I changed uh, just the, the magnitude of everything. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that, that played a, a huge role in it. I think that, that, um, man, e- egos just, just got, got crazy. And, yeah. and when I, when I was honestly just trying to hang on to my gig it just got to a point where I was kind of looking for a way out mm-hmm. and, um, that way it came, that way out came and I didn't take it the first time around. And I, and I don't know why I didn't, but the Avid brothers came knocking or I should really say Rick Rubin came knocking. So how did, I was going to say, so were you guys were recording with Rick with dashboard and then, and that's how you had the relationship with Rick or how did you have a relationship with him? So I, in, in my years of touring with dashboard, Rick Rubin along the way went to a dashboard confessional show just because, you know, he's the kind of guy that if someone's got hype, he wants to go see what all the hype's about. Right. That's just how, that's how he works. Or at least seemingly that's how he works. And he went to a house of blues show. We were doing three nights or something in Anaheim and, or, or not Anaheim, the one on sunset. And, um, and he loved my drumming. And he hated the band. Really? He just, he thought it was terrible. And he, and the, you know, and, and that it is what it is. Um, and he, he started, he kind told of, you that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and not in those words, but he's like, you know, I didn't care. I really didn't care for the band, but right. I really, I really loved your drumming. Like you, you added something to the band that to me seemed like, um, it, it, it just, it, it just really turned me on to, to what you were doing. That's cool. You know? That's a compliment, yeah, I mean, especially, I mean, that's a compliment from anyone, but especially from Rick Rubin. Well, for me, it, it, I mean, it changed my life. I mean, yeah. that's, 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 that's the compliment you wait for, right? That like, that's the yeah. one that you're, you're hoping will come to someone in your life. Of course. Um, but I, you know, I, my wife and I, um, my, my wife got pregnant in 2005, early 2005. And we moved to Tampa because that's where some of my family lived. And we had our first child and 
the family didn't really end up helping out like we kind of hoped. And it was for lots of different reasons. And we understood. And so, and I, I started kind of feeling like I don't really want to be in dashboard confessional anymore. Like, I don't think. And my wife's like, well, where do you think we should live for you to have work? And I said, well, let's go to LA. Mm-hmm. So we packed our shit. We'd only been in, in Tampa for like a year, not even, I mean, maybe a year. Yeah. Maybe like a year and four months. something like that. We, we owned this beautiful house. We had a pool. Right. It was wonderful. But our, our neighborhood was kind of like a bad Tim Burton movie or something. It was like, you know, the first, <laughs> their first question is like, what church do you go to? You know, like, right, right. and, uh, so we, um, packed our bags, went to LA and, and literally the second we landed in LA, we realized like, we were like, we wanted to ask the pilot if he could make a U-turn and like, go back. Really? <laughs> it was like, it was instant. We were just like, fuck this. Really? There's, they were, it ain't gonna, it ain't gonna happen. Why, and I, Why and was I got, that? I, man, it was just, we, you, first of all, we had a one-year-old, my wife's and my wife's a nurse and she was working in like the cardiac unit, which was, is as I'm sure you can imagine is crazy stress in Los Angeles. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, um, I was really unhappy with my job and I was living in a town that's, you know, you're just stuck in your car right? all fucking day. And, and, you know, we were, I didn't really know a lot of people there. Like I had some friends that I would see and I was getting some work and I was, I produced a couple records. I played on some records and like, I was like, all right, I can, maybe I can do this. But like, I knew I wasn't really going to be super happy because you have to make so much money to like have a family in Los Angeles. I live here. I get it. <laughs> oh, see, okay. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. yeah I knew that. That's right. My, so, my wife and I, a couple of weeks ago went out looking for houses and we, like, cause we were like, all right, let's see, you know, how much does, a million dollars get you. How much does 500,000 get you? How much does 2 million get? Like, I'm like, I have no idea. Right. So let's just go around and look at, and I'm like, okay, in the area, like where we live right now, uh, a million dollars gets you a shithole. It does. I'm so sorry, man. I mean, it does. Like, that's just what it is. And we went and looked, we went and looked at this house. Like we were just driving by. I don't want anyone to think that we were looking at at this house, but we were driving by and we were like, oh, let's just check it out. Like, it looks cool. It's in a great neighborhood. Uh, Let's, let's check it out. And we go in it was gorgeous. And it was like $3.7 million. Jesus, man. You know? And you're like, that's okay. You need three and a half million bucks to have a yard and a, you know, (laughs) And all, and that was in Pasadena. That was, you know, that was in the Valley. So, yeah. So it's, we started, uh, that's where we started looking was in Pasadena. And then we started yeah. looking at Riverbank and then we looked in, uh, oh God, I don't even remember, man. It's, it's not cheap stuff. anywhere. It's not cheap anywhere. anywhere. And we went real estate shopping and, and, um, we walked into a house that was 1200 square feet that needed a kitchen and new bathrooms. It had a detached garage, which was a plus cause I wanted a studio it had a little tiny yard and, and, and what they were calling a pool, which was the size of a hot tub. <laughs> and, um, and it, it was $800,000. Yeah. Yep. And, and I, I just looked at my wife and I'm like, well, I mean, we can probably make this work, but if anything happens, anything to my job or your job, we are fucked. Yeah. Like totally fucked. It's crazy. Man. So we, yeah, it's crazy, man. So we went back home to the house we were renting at the time. And another thing about LA is we actually found out that our daughter, our first daughter was allergic to dairy because she was throwing up and sick the entire time we were there. Ugh. And 
we, and, and like most kids, they just want to eat macaroni and cheese and ice cream all day and pizza. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're just feeding her this shit. Like, well, you know, she's got to eat something and then she'd throw up that night. We're like, what is like. It was almost like a, an omen, right? It's like a yes, made like a bad... poisoning us. We gotta yeah. get out of here. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I actually found out that that fucking hot dogs had dairy when I lived there because I gave her one, and uh, this was like weeks after, and she was doing better. She was becoming this like pink baby again, and I gave her a hot dog at a party, and she threw up that night, and I was like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> and uh, and I, I read hot dogs have dairy in them. I was like, "Jesus!" Anyway, really? I didn't know that. I'm allergic yeah. to dairy, so I should keep that in mind. I don't eat hot dogs. Yeah, but. I mean, check the, check the label. I mean, some some I've found out, some don't. Um, but you know, the the ones that were at this party did. Anyway, um, so when I was living in LA, I actually got a call. Do you know who Mike Mogus is? Mm, no. Mike Mogus was in a band called Cursive. Okay. And he's a he. They were kind of an emo rock band at the time. He's like singer songwriter producer. Super intelligent guy, real talented dude. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he got in touch with me and he asked me if I'd be interested in playing on a on a Pete Yorn record. And I was like, "Yeah, I love Pete. That'd be great." And I'd met Pete before, you know, through Dashboard. And and um, I was like, "Yeah, this would be awesome." So they sent me the songs, which were like three songs to learn, um, and uh, just for starters, just to kind of get my feet wet. And uh, I end up getting this call. Uh, about two weeks later and mike says hey can you meet at this like rehearsal space um can you yeah can you read at this at, meet at this rehearsal space for for uh for a hang and like we're gonna play through the songs and i was like huh well, okay yeah sure so i packed up my cymbals and my pedal and i went down there and i walked into the room and it was this you know normal sort of you know carpets on the wall little tiny pa uh, kind of, you know, your, your run of the mill rehearsal space. Mm-hmm. And I, I set up behind the kit and, uh, I, uh, I, I ended up finding out that I was, I was auditioning to play on a Pete Yorn record. Really? And I was like, what the, f- I've never heard of anything in my life like that. Like <laughs> who, like who auditions to play on a record? Like you right. just call a studio guy and they go play. Yeah. Why? What's that all about? I don't know. I mean, honestly, to this day, it was just sort of like, okay. Cause, and I knew it was a fact because after I was done playing, another dude walked through like right, right. As I was leaving, he walked in with a stick bag and a pedal and Pete Yorn and him like hugged, like they were long lost lovers. And I was just like, okay, well, I'll see y'all later. High fives. And I got back in my car and I wasn't even a mile away. And Mike called me and said, Hey, listen, man, you know, you were great and, and this and that. And, and, you know, it's just, you know, we think we found our guy for this record and, and I'll keep you in mind for stuff in the future. And I was like, cool, man, you know, no problem. And, you know, hung on my phone and I think I went to whatever my session was later that evening. And it was, it's fine, man. You know, but, but in my mind, I was kind of like, Oh, what the fuck was that all about? Like, I just, I had never heard of anything like that before. Me neither. So anyway, so fast forward, um, I, I, ended up one night talking to my wife we she was real upset about living there and i was upset and our fucking kid was probably throwing up in the corner and we were just like you know <laughs> i don't what mean, mean to we make light like, of it, it was... <laughs> no dude it, it, I, I can laugh at it now but we were just <laughs> we were over it and i said i looked at my wife and i said do you want to move to nashville and dude she lit up like a christmas tree i mean it was like jumped in my arms and was just like yes please 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 you know and on, in her days of touring Tennessee kind of always treated her band well. And there's, you know, and of course it's Music City and they've got Vanderbilt. My wife's a nurse and it just made sense. So we're like, let's do it. So I ended up packing a bag. I flew out to Nashville, started looking at neighborhoods alone. 
found East Nashville, found a house, bought the house. So I flew my whole family out here in August of 2008. And on, literally on my birthday, August 13th, 2008, I get a call. I'm literally at dinner on my birthday. I get a call from American Recordings. And this woman says, can you be in a session tomorrow in Malibu for Rick Rubin? And I was like, uh, excuse me? And uh, she said, yeah, Rick, Rick Rubin wants you to, uh, to be in the studio tomorrow at, at 10 a.m. Can you make it? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I said, listen, I'm right in the middle of dinner. Can I call you back in like 20 minutes? Um, I'm getting ready to sign the check and all. And she's like, yeah, sure. Call. No, no problem. So I get off the phone and my wife's like, who is it? Who is it? Uh, and I'm like, well, hang on a second. I'm just trying to collect my thoughts. I'm like, what the fuck? So I'm thinking <laughs> to myself like, okay, wait a second. It's my birthday. I just moved to Nashville. One of my knucklehead's friends is fucking with me right now. Right. One of right. my knucklehead friends is pulling the biggest prank they can possibly pull on me right now. So I, I call Heartache Management that was at the time managing Dashboard Confessional. Now, mind you, Dashboard Confessional is still a band. I'm still in it. We're still touring. We're still active. Right. And I, um, I call and I end up talking to our manager and I said, man, do you know anything about Rick Rubin or, you know, American recordings wanting me on a session? And, and he's like, yeah, I actually ran into Rick at a, you know, whatever, something. And, and he asked for your number. And I was like, get the fuck out of here. Really? He's like, yeah. And I was, I was like, all right, man, well, I'm going to, I'm going to let you go. (laughs) I I, I can't talk to you right now. I got to call Rick. (laughs) I have to call somebody back right now. (laughs) So I call her back and I said, I I will absolutely be there. You seriously, you have nothing to worry about. I will see you there. And, um, I get off the phone and I ended up getting a text from my manager or dashboards manager at the time. And he said, Hey, we bought you. We, I got you a flight to LA on my miles as a gift, like a kind of a housewarming gift. And I was like, and it was seriously the nicest thing this person had ever done for me. Wow. Ever. Like it was like, I'm still very grateful for that because honestly I had just put a down payment on a house and I had no money. Right. Like we were, we, we were upside down on the house in Tampa. We had to bring 20 grand to the table. I mean, we were, we were in bad shape financially and, um, so anyway, I, uh, I get on the plane, I, I land, I, a car, this black car picks me up and, and what do of you course bring to the session? What did I bring? Yeah. I'd be like, uh, I I'd be like, I, I'll bring everything I have. <laughs> man. So this is the thing. I literally, I brought a stick bag. Huh. I fucking, I brought a stick bag in my phone and a little duffel bag with a change of clothes. Cause I thought I'll probably be there for 24 hours or something like that. Right. Cause it was, I was only going to be playing like, uh, like on, on a partial record, like on some Got of the it. songs that they, that they wanted a little bit more finesse or whatever they, they needed at the time. So I, I pull up to, uh, what was in the document? I think it was called the document room in Malibu. I don't think it's there anymore. Um, but I pull up to it and there's these big gates and I see these two hillbilly looking dudes walking towards me like wife beaters, cut off shorts, boots, beards, <laughs> Right. And I'm like, what fuck is this? And I and I I had never heard of the Avid Brothers before. I had no idea who the Avid Brothers were. And mm-hmm. I didn't do any homework. I wanted to just go in blind to this thing just to see what I wanted to challenge myself. Right. And I I get out of the car and I'm greeted by Scott and Seth Avid. And I'm 
I was like, hey, I'm Mike. And, and they were the sweetest dudes I've ever met. Mike, thanks so much for doing this, man. We've heard so much about you. We're so stoked you're here. And they're giving me hugs. And we're walking up to the back up to the house where the document room was. And they're, we're shooting the shit about music. And they're asking me about my band. And it just felt so natural, man. It felt like I had known these guys my whole life. It was an instant connection. And I, I walk in, I sit down, I'm greeted by their manager, Dolph Ramser, and he's totally sweet guy, total knucklehead. And then I end up meeting uh, Mike Bayer, who is known as Cracker Farm. He's their photographer who's been shooting in video and pictures of them for the last, at the time, 12 years or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, I meet Joe Kwan, who's our cellist, and he's he's in the kitchen cooking, which is like kind of where you will find him if he's not on stage. He's, he's like the biggest foodie I know. And, um, and then I meet Bob Crawford, the bass player, and he's like the sweetest dude ever, like teddy bear, lovable guy. I just felt it, it was so refreshing, man. I was just like, God, I'm around these beautiful people. Like there's no yeah. egos. There's no like, it just felt so normal. And I, I still had not heard a note of their music, not a single note. And then I walk into the control room and fucking lo and behold, Ryan Hewitt is sitting in the chair. I don't know if you know who Ryan Hewitt is. No, I don't. He's an he's an engineer. He worked for Rick Rubin for a lot of years. He did Chili Pep- he did Chili Peppers records and oh, I mean, wow. he's he's a he's a bad motherfucker. Let's just say that. I'm I'm very good friends with him now, but I I had just kind of gotten into like engineering and reading about people and I knew who Ryan Hewitt was. Mm-hmm. I I was actually probably geeking out about him a month before I had been standing in a room with him so i'm i get really nervous like immediately like i'm like wait this is like this is a fucking big deal man like this is this is a rick rubin session dude like i should have <laughs> right. like, i should have combed my hair for this you know like i <laughs> yeah, should have like, done some push-ups or something <laughs> yeah like i just felt so out of like out of my element man so i've been checking out the new sonar sq1s and let me tell you, these drums are sick. They're made out of birch, all right? Why, you ask? Because birch has balanced low, mid, and high ranges. So they sound really, really good in this recording studio, plus they sound great live. Now, this is some really cool stuff. They have a sound stabilizer system, and it's actually based on concepts applied in the automotive industry, and it's rubber to metal so that you're getting complete isolation from the shell. Not only that, the colors that they come in also resemble high-end automobiles, so they're all matte lacquer finishes. These kits are insane, and not only that, they sound amazing. To learn more about the SQ1 series, go to sonar.com. Hey, do yourself a favor and check out Promark's Select Balance Drumsticks. These sticks give players the ability to fine-tune their standard stick model to fit their playing style. Let me give you an example. If you play rock or country or metal, check out the forward balance. These are front-weighted and give you enhanced power and speed. If you are playing jazz or funk or gospel, then check out the rebound balance. These are rear-weighted and gives you more finesse and more agility. Plus, they're made by Promark, which you know you're going to get a quality product because they control the entire process from the forest to the finished drumstick. Plus, they're paired by pitch and by weight, so there's zero guesswork when you're grabbing that stick out of your stick bag. Do yourself a favor. Check them out by going to promark.com. Anyway, uh, 
they they were like, so you want to hear something? I'm like, hell yeah, I want to hear something. So they turn on. I don't know how much you know about the Avid Brothers, but um, they I turn on a song enough, called. Yeah. Head, yeah, they turn on a song called "Head Full of Doubt, Road Full of Promise," which to this day is still one of their most sort of beloved songs mm-hmm. by all their fans and and even by the band. Like it's just one of the funnest ones to play every night. And they play me this song and and it's over and I'm just like what the fuck i'm like who the fuck are you guys like what <laughs> what is this i like are you joking Did, you wrote that i like i it was dude i can't even begin to explain to you what was going on in my brain it's like when you it's like the first time i heard rush and yeah. i was just like what the fuck holy crap where has this been all my life like i literally felt like the like i just won the lottery like i was the luckiest dude ever and Ryan, Ryan's like, you know, you want to go in and, and, and give it a shot? And I'm like, well, yeah, let me hear it one more time. And they play me through again. I'm like, man, I just want to hear, I just want to hear the song again. Play it one more time. All I right. just love this song. This song is so good. So I go, I finally have the song in my head and we go in and there's like, there's no click track. I'm just like kind of playing to the, playing to the track. And I'll never forget this, but Seth Avitt was actually in the room with me. And the song is, it's like a six, eight type song. And it's like got this 16th note hi-hat thing, you know, double-handed kind of, mm. and he's in the room, he's in the room, like mimicking the parts while I'm playing him. And he's like, he's like, this way. he's like, go to the ride and I'll go to the ride. And I'm sitting there playing and, you know, and he's like, Phil, and I do a fill. And, and then it, it, like he was, he had it in his head exactly what he wanted like down to the note like he wow. knew exactly what he wanted and um it was it was really cool it was actually really funny and it's honestly one of the fondest memories i have of ever playing with these guys i'll never forget it it's amazing um, yeah it was it was great and and then i went back in and we listened to some more music and funny story and i'll try to make this one short um there was a song called on and on and now this this record i was recording was a record called i am loving you and i uh i listened to this song and um ryan said you know do you, do you think you think you can you, you can knock that one out and i said i said yeah and he's like because you know we were really only we really weren't planning on doing any recording today and i'm like yeah man let's give it a shot so i went in and and it's another kind of uh it's like a shuffly kind of you know real swingy type thing almost like everybody wants to rule the world type thing so I'm in there and I'm putting all these grace notes in there and I'm feeling real groovy and good about myself. And I feel like I'm just really laying in the pocket and Ryan stops and he says, Hey, 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 hey man. He goes, Hey, can, can we like really simplify that? Like I really, I'm thinking literally like, like coordinate, like kick, snare, kick, snare, kick, snare, like mm-hmm. real, like almost drum machine. Like I'm like, sure dude. So we do that. We lay that down. We get through all the parts. We kind of take it section by section. Cause there was like things they wanted and, and then we get to the end of the song and we call it a night, hugs and kisses. Everyone goes to bed. We wake up in the morning and um, we start kind of listening back to stuff we did. And then Rick walks in the door and he walks in with this, this, this dog that has like, like dreadlocks and shit. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. Of course and I, I, I want to say he had two of them at the time. And he sits down Indian style next to me on the, on the couch. He, you know, he greets, he greets me and he's, thank you so much for doing this. And 
I don't even think I said a word. I was just like, good man. I, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I was just like dumbfounded by this man's presence. And he sits down Indian style on this chair and his dogs sit one to the left and one to the right. And they're just staring at him the whole time, like in stereo, like just looking at him every time he adjusted, they would kind of move, like get ready to go. And then they'd sit back down at ease. I love it. it was unbelievable. And so we, we go to listen to some of the stuff. He listens through head full of doubt. He's like, this is great. This is wonderful. This is exactly what we needed. And I'm feeling so good about myself. And then we get to that song on and on. He's listening through, he listens to the whole thing. And then he stops and he's like, Hey Mike, do you think you could groove a little bit more in that verse? <laughs> and I was like, "Motherfucker!" <laughs> I was like, you know, it's funny. You should say that Rick, because yeah, I think I probably can. So I, you know, it, interestingly enough, like, Ryan really had his finger on on Rick's pulse a lot. Like he really knew what Rick wanted, right? And he he made some in, incredible calls. Um, but that one that one moment, I remember uh, uh, Ryan looked at me with this sort of blushing smile and just kind of shrugged his shoulders. And I was like, <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, can't win them all. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, and of course, I went back in and we played through the verses, and it was fine. Um, but uh. You know, Rick's a—he's an interesting guy, man. He doesn't say much. He—he—he he, he listens in his way, and he'll get up and dance in front of the console. And he's—he's this—he's this presence, you know. It's like there's there's something that kind of happens to the room when he's in it, you know. You can't mm -hmm. really—you can't describe it. You can't—you um, can't even try to figure it out. It's just something's happening. And when he speaks, you listen because you're going to learn something. Right. Right. If you if you listen, you're going to learn. And and um. And I, I am so unbelievably grateful, not only for his knowledge and to be, and even just to be a guy in the room with him, but he gave me a career with his band. Right. He handed it to me on a silver platter. And, um, you know, of course, Scott and Seth had to, had to uh, approve me coming sure. because he went through, I want to say he, he, he gave them the, the option of Chad Smith, who was living down the street. Um, I think Elvis Costello's old drummer and, and, and me, hmm. and they chose me. Uh, I don't know if it was like an age thing or if they were, uh, you know, they were just truly impressed by the videos that, that Rick was showing them. But, um, man, am I grateful because even if that had only been what I, if that had only been what I'd done with them this far, it, it changed my life Yeah, to be, to be in that room and to, to, to be a part of such incredible, refreshing songs. Um, it, it, it really is amazing. And I went home floating and I got home and I'm like, honey, you gotta, we gotta listen to the Abel brothers every day. We gotta hear these songs and <laughs> talking a million miles per hour. And I became this instant fan. We, we, we ended up getting all these records and listening to them and, and becoming such great fans and I, I just like waited on on pins and needles for them to call me again. Because of course, when I left, I was like, guys, if you ever need anything, like shoe shined, like right. if you need your beards beards waxed, like whatever. <laughs> I'm your guy. <laughs> I'm your guy. And um, I got that call. They called me to play on Letterman on their their first performance on Letterman. We actually played the song "I Am Loving You." And man, when I hung up that phone, I was just like, yes, I think I'm getting this gig. I think I'm going to be their drummer. This is so exciting. And, um, that turned into like another, another call to play on their live record. And then I started kind of doing shows here and there, some of their bigger shows and all the while I'm also touring with dashboard dashboard. had just made a record, which was my last record with them. And, um, 
it got to a place where I was like, man, I, I can't do these both. Yeah. Like I had, I had another kid and life was just happening. I was like, I, I can't be in two like big bands. This is insane. Like it, it can't last. I can't, right. it's never, it's, it's, it's going to intersect at some point and not work. And, um, so I ended up talking to Chris about the, the, the band and kind of where we're at. And it seemed like we were on a, in a place where we're, we're, we're going to figure it out. And we had, we had some gas left in the tank and, you know, we had this, this tour with, with Bon Jovi of all fucking things booked. And, um, we, so we went on this, we went on this tour with Bon Jovi and I ended up uh, doing a show about about two weeks before that tour started with the Avid Brothers. And I said to Scott and Seth, listen, I've got to go do this tour because I feel like it's the right thing to do. And um, I need to feel like I've seen this thing through and I don't want to let anybody down. I'm just I'm not the kind of guy that like I don't like to jump ship. Right. Right. It's just it doesn't feel right to me. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, and so I did it. I went on this tour and man, I found myself two weeks into this tour. Like this is the worst thing I've ever done in my oh, life. How long was the tour? Dude, it was like six or eight weeks. It was miserable. Yeah. And, and here's the thing, man, is the Bon Jovi people were fucking amazing. Like the nicest dudes ever. The hospitality was incredible. John would check in on us. He's like the most lovely guy you've ever, all of them were just lovely. Like, and I've never met like bigger rock stars in my life. Like right. these guys were just like ready to like fucking live on a prayer every second of the day. <laughs> right. Seriously, like feathers in their hair and shit, where they're wearing leather like hats. It's like just looked awesome all the time. So you know, I, I would I would talk with these fucking guys, and and they were just like. They were amazing. I mean, I remember one of the, the first day we met Bon Jovi, he pulls us all into a huddle and in this, he, it's almost like his voice changed for a second. He's like, listen, anybody fucks with you, you fucking tell me and I'll fucking take care of it. He said it like <laughs> Jersey style, like whole, like straight up Jersey style. And all of us, you know, John left and all of us look at each other. We kind of laugh. We kind of do that. Like kind of right. <laughs> like Bon Jovi just said that. So, that was kind of that was him in a nutshell. Like he really looked out for us. He was really grateful. Of course, the shows were huge, but no one mm. gives a fuck about anybody but Bon Jovi when they're in, the, in those buildings. No right. one wants to see. It, it didn't even matter if fucking Mick Jagger walked on stage. They wanted to see Bon Jovi. Right. Okay. Right. Like who the fuck is Dashboard Confessional? Right. You know, like that was literally <laughs> the feeling that I was getting, and um, so. Man, I wrote this really long-winded email about three weeks into the tour, two to three weeks. I wrote a really long-winded email to, to Scott Avitt, and I just said, "Man, listen, I am, I, I'm ready to, I'm ready to go. When this tour is over, man, I'm just, uh, I'm ready to come over. I can't do this anymore. It's, it's just, it's killing me, and um, I just, just, I don't like where anything is emotional." and just the inner turmoil and all the things that are happening that the, the music just isn't me and you know, everything like i just right, laid it right, all out right, right. and like just spilled my blood on the page and man i got an email back about three days later two days later and scott was like mike uh, you know i'm so sorry but we had to we had to find somebody like we we had to get you know a drummer to, to mm -hmm. fill in the spots that we needed and man i was i was crushed like just completely crushed like i was at the lowest that I can really ever remember being in my career at the time. Like it just felt like it kind of just felt like 
everything broke up at once. Yeah. Like everything left, everything left me, you know, it just felt terrible. And my, you know, my wife had told me, man, she was just like, you got to do the Saber Brothers thing. And she was just so like, just really trying to make sense of everything to me. And, but she supported me, man. She was just like, you know, you got to go with your gut. And if this is what you feel is right, you got to do what you feel is right. And it's really crazy, man, because like I went through a year of, of playing really some shitty gigs and did some things in Nashville that I, I can't even believe I did. Right. I mean, even right. just for instance, like I was called in to play with this singer songwriter who was uh, like an American idol winner or, mm -hmm. or not even, not even like a runner up. It was like really bottom of the barrel. And, um, uh, she sent me the songs and, and, and I, I learned them. And then it came to, I came to find out, find out, I come to find out, um, about a week before we're leaving that it was going to be on Cajon. Oh. And dude, I wanted, I wanted to put a gun in my mouth. I mean, not really, but it right, was just right. like, I can't fucking stand Cajones, dude. I, I can't <laughs> What's stand your beef with Cajones? I don't know, man. I just, I, I, maybe just growing up my, in Miami, they were just everywhere and they drove me fucking nuts. <laughs> I just, I don't know. You know, it's, it's, this is, this is the thing about Cajones with, with music that I love. Like if, if Scott and Seth were like, Hey man, maybe we should do a downstage thing with a Cajon. I'd be like, all right, well, the, at least the songs are awesome. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, there's like yeah, a redeeming yeah. quality here. Dude, I was playing with a fucking American Idol runner up. I wanted to kill myself. It was horrible. <laughs> and I, the only the only saving grace was that my buddy Chris Locke was playing guitar in the, in, the, in, the, in the band, too. He's the one that got me the gig. And he's amazing. He's like a killer musician, like funny as shit. And so those those couple of days were like fine because he was there. But. Oh my God, dude, that's the kind of shit I was doing in that time, the time between dashboard and, uh, you know, and, and then on literally the day after my, my oldest daughter's birthday, which is it was December 6th, 2012, I get a call. I'm literally sitting at my dining room table with a, with a line of like six or seven little girls getting ready to get their faces painted by me. <laughs> um, kind of the morning after the slumber party type deal, yeah, eating yeah, yeah. donuts eating faces and um i get a call from north carolina and i'm and you know most of the time if like a name doesn't pop up i don't answer it i just wait for a voicemail but something right. told me i'm like wait north carolina the only person i know that lives in north carolina only people i know are scott and seth avid so i pick it up and sure enough it was scott avid on the other line and he said hey how you doing and so on and so forth and i was wondering if you'd be willing to do our new year's eve show this year and I was like, wait, well, what happened to your drummer? And they're like, oh, you know, we let him go. We had some, you know, differences we needed to work out. They weren't working out. So we let him go. So I like, I put my fucking hand over the phone. I'm just like, yes, I wanted to like scream to the fucking gods, man. I was just like so happy that this is, this had nice. happened. So I get off the phone and of course I say, yes. I'm like, yeah, do whatever you need. Send me all the most songs. Like I'll learn all, I'll learn all your records, whatever you need me for, you know, just you let me know. And I get off the phone. My wife's like, wow, what, what, what's going on? I'm like, I think I'm back in the Avid Brothers. And she just like, it was like asking her if she wants to move to Nashville. She just like lit up. Amazing. I mean, it, was, it was unbelievable, man. My daughter even, my daughter was like, what? You know, it was, it was awesome. It was amazing. So fast forward, playing the New Year's Eve show, um, which went, which went great. And uh, I, uh, sitting backstage after the show the brothers were like do you think you could do like a hundred shows this year and i was like yeah i could probably work that in <laughs> I, could swing, I could swing it <laughs> i think i can swing that so man it's you know to 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 kind of revert like things come around full circle 
Mm-hmm. They, they they can come around full circle, and I and I know for a fact that a big part of why the brothers um, found found the road back to me was because of my loyalty, and and I I think that that if you're in a situation that is really really miserable and unbearable to to a point where you 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 don't even think you're going to be able to like finish the first song, it's probably your time to go. Yeah. But if you feel like you could probably stick it out for a little while, just because of like, you know, maybe you can distance yourself from the bullshit, mm-hmm. um, you know, just, just kind of like keep your head down and, and, and do the gig at the end of the day, for me, it was like, well, do I want to be playing drums or do I want to swing a hammer? Right. And you know what? I want to play drums. So I stuck it out with the dashboard thing. And, um, you know, th- thankfully, you know, we, we were still playing some songs that I really enjoyed playing. Mm-hmm. And um, that was kind of my light. That was like, well, at least I get to play. Like, I, I get to play. And, you know, it, the truth of the matter is playing in Dashboard Confessional was really fun physically and musically. It was really yeah. fun. Like the songs or not. And you know what? I can give and take. I, I can give or take whatever of those songs. Like there were some that I was just like, Oh Jesus. And there was some where I was like, this is really fucking cool. Right. Particularly some of the earlier stuff where we were like on fire and no one, there was no suits telling us what to do. And we were just like, this is who we are, man. We're making art. Like that was, that's always so important to me, man. I just want to make art. I just want to make art. And, and, and then we got to a place where we weren't making art anymore. It was like this, there was a formulaic thing that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was still fun. Yeah, it was yeah, yeah. fun. It was fun in the way that like Michael Jackson's music is formulaic in terms of drumming because there's a lot of like quote unquote money beats, right? Yeah. But it's fucking fun to yeah. play, man. Yeah, it's it is. so fun to play. It is. Or, or or even Zeppelin, like Zeppelin, like, yeah, John Bonham's a genius, but the songs in of themselves, it just learning, just kind of learning to play them. And I'm not saying learning to play them as good as him because that's impossible. I'm saying just learning to play them. They're just fun to play. I agree. I agree. And that's, that's how I felt with dashboard. I was like, well, at least these songs are fun to play. Yeah. I get to be aggressive. I get to be dynamic. I can, I get to play cool grooves. I get to still play some of the grooves that I'm really proud of to have written and you know, whatever, all of the above. It, yeah. it was, it was a thing that I felt I could still stay loyal to. And then it wasn't there. And I found myself like, well, fuck now what? And then man, it came around full circle and I know it had to do a lot with them feeling like they wanted someone who was going to be loyal. Right. And love the, the music that you're playing and like really want to be there. Yeah, man. And I, I, I really, and that comes across in everything. It comes across in the conversations. It comes across on the bus. It comes across on stage. It comes across in the music. It's like, it's like, it's, you can tell, like it, it becomes, it becomes very apparent when that's not the, that's not the vibe. You know what I mean? Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And, and, and it's, yeah, everyone's felt that. And I, I've never once had a situation on stage with them where I didn't feel some type of really heavy connection there's right. never been a, there's never been a night where at least for a part of that set i didn't feel like man th- th- these are really magical moments this is th- these songs are so have so much depth and 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 i'm in the middle of just like sweeping brushes like i'm not playing anything that's right. gonna blow any drummer's skirt up i'm right. doing 
boom. I mean, just as simple as can be, you know, and but I'm just like, what um, a beautiful song. I think there's more. Uh, that's what, to me, that's what it's all about. It's just like that, that reaction that you get and that feeling that you get from a, from a great song. You know, there was, yeah. there was something I wanted to ask you about, uh, that you were talking about a while ago about being in the room with Rick Rubin, because I know that you do a lot of recording yourself. You just recorded your own record. Um, and what are some of the things, what did you learn from Rick Rubin about, or about recording and, and that you've put into practice, like in your own studio and your own sessions and, and the things that you're doing? Okay. Yeah, I can, I can answer that, that for sure. Um, the, so early on with, with, uh, I'm going to back up just a little bit early on with, with dashboard, when I started recording major label records with them, I was, and we were as a band very stuck in the songs that we were recording because we had been touring on them. Mm-hmm. We had, we had toured the songs, we wrote our parts, we rehearsed them, we had locked them in. So when Gil Norton made Mark mission brand a scar for us, it was a fucking nightmare for him to communicate anything to me because I was so set in what I was doing. Really? And Chris was on board with it and everybody was on board with it. Everyone like, we just had our ways we wanted to do things. As I recall, Everybody in the room that was playing on that record, with the exception of maybe John Leffler, um, uh, we were, Chris and I were just like, this is what Dashboard sounds like, and this is what we're going to put down. Mm-hmm. And as the band progressed through the years, and we started becoming more, or I should really say Chris started becoming more focused on the less is more type of, of theory. Um, and the producers we were working with were, were solely working under that regime, if you will. Um, lots of things had to change and I had to become educated about that, like what that means and what being formulaic and writing a hit and playing for the song. Mm -hmm. See, cause my, my whole thought has always been play for the song. Because yeah. of the the school I came from, which was Zeppelin and Rush, like whether you like it or not, Neil Peart played for the song. Yeah, <laughs> whether you like it or not, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yep. he played for that song. Like it could not have been better. He did what he did what that song needed, right? So I have pulled from all those aspects. You know, Stuart Copeland, like you know, he's overplayed a bit, but he played for that song. Mm-hmm. Like the energy and the, the 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 spontaneity and everything, like that's the drummer I wanted to be. So I, when someone would sit me down and say, well, can you just do this? I would think to myself, like that doesn't feel like I'm playing for the song. That feels like I'm playing your way for the song. Yeah. It kind of, it kind of strips you of your artistic, you know, in, not, I don't want to say artistic integrity, but your, your artistic expression. Yeah. Just like, you know, any, any, like I didn't write the dashboard confessional songs, but I, I had been given the freedom earlier on to at least write my own drum parts right and to have that freedom so when i started being told what to do with that it it, i got very offended by it but then it turned into like learning from that and understanding that there is a place for this and there's a place for that you know the fire excuse me the fireworks going off at the end of the song and that's when you throw in all the explosives Mm -hmm. you know things like that like those things all kind of set into motion now Fast forward to working with Rick Rubin. So we all know Rick Rubin is a big hip hop guy, big mm-hmm. rap guy. And he's 
And the the core foundation of any because I know you're a big fan of hip hop, mm-hmm. old hip hop. Yep. yep. Like myself. Um, and of course, it doesn't really get any cooler than Rick Rubin's records that he's produced. Yep. You know, as far as I'm concerned, the the Run DMC and Beastie Boy stuff <clears throat> and, and LL Cool J stuff is is fucking cool as it gets. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm with you. I agree. Yeah. So. And the the core of all of that is a groove, right? I mean, the, you, you will not have hip hop without a groove. Yeah, I mean, most it, of that it, stuff is sampled off of old groove drummers, anyway. Right, you know? right, right. Or, or or even you know thought up on an eight oh eight, you know, where it's yep. like, okay, let's let's loop something, you know. And and Rick is a master of that, like an absolute master of that. Of, of whether he's whether he's now programming, having someone else program them or whatever, it's his brainchild. Mm-hmm. And he knows, he knows what is going to sh- make someone shake their ass. Right. Right. And when I work in the studio with Rick, s- specifically when we were making true sadness, I went into that and that was two records ago. I went into that session being like, I'm going to keep my mouth shut and I am just going to learn. And I want to, I just want to know where Rick is coming from. I'm not going to fight anybody on anything. I'm not going to tell anybody what I think would be a better thing all i'm going to do is maybe occasionally say hey how about this and if they say no then no is no mm-hmm. you know because these aren't my songs and as far as i know this isn't my band this i'm i'm simply just trying to get these songs to sound the best that they can sound and that's what i need to be i just need to be a soldier right mm-hmm. so you go in there and be a soldier and that's what i did and rick's approach to drumming is very he's very precise but the thing about Rick is that he he is so in tune with notes and groove and um, placement mm-hmm. and dynamics that you cannot help to be swept up or swept away in it. Like you just feel like, yes, like let's do that, man. Mm-hmm. Like I'm sure it, it raises it, your your level of creativity too, right? It does. And that's the thing about Rick is that he raises, he, he raises the bar for you. It's not like he's barking orders at you, which is what I felt was happening in the past. This is more of like, it's a suggestion. And it's also like, Hey, try it this, try it exactly this way. Let's just try it exactly this way. Mm-hmm. And just see what is born out of this. Right. Okay. Right. And I'll be in there and he'll literally be in the room. I can see him through the fucking windows of the control room. I can see him doing this like palm, like kick. And then this like pointing down, like snare, like put the kick here and put the snare there. And I'm sitting there just trying to follow his thing. And we finally get to a place where I'm like, I'm in my head. Like, dude, this is so badass. This fucking <laughs> groove is so badass. It's like, fuck this guy should have been a drummer you know (laughs) like it's so good and the only the only thing that i am contributing to what was essentially his brainchild and obviously this didn't happen on every song but the ones that he was real like fiery and passionate about the groove being a specific way he put his foot down about certain things Mm -hmm. and the only difference and and the thing that i was able to bring to the table was how would mike marsh play that groove Right. You know, yep. what, what, what's in between the notes? What's in, what, where's the space? You know, are, are there drags? Is there a, you know, a ghost note before that hi-hat? Like, 
how, is the hi-hat going to, you know, am I going to throw some pea soups in there? Like, right, 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 right. How, how am I going to make this my own thing? And then I would try just these little things, like even just a pea soup, just anything, any mm-hmm. little thing to just make it my own. And he would just jump for joy, man. Like, yes. Like he, just, it, it just gets you so excited about the most minimalistic shit. I love and, it. Yeah, man. And I've brought that to, I, mean, I don't know if you've had a chance to hear the EP I just put out, but I, did I not took, yet. yeah, well, I, I took that, that idea to, you know, like, like, in, like trying to entrance somebody, like we, when we're listening to music that's supposed to be groovy and, and, and send a message and have like cool lines and cool melodies, like we're trying to entrance somebody, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're trying to like get them to like, emote and feel something that maybe they haven't felt or maybe something that they need to feel and 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 hopefully feel what i was feeling when Mm -hmm. i made that track you know and um i really feel that 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 truly starts that that entrancement um starts with a groove yep like it absolutely starts with a groove and i'll never forget working i worked with daniel lanois one time on on a dashboard recording which actually got shelved believe it or not um and Dan- i don't know if you know who daniel lanois is D- oh, daniel daniel lanois made the joshua tree for for you too oh yeah just i am familiar with that <laughs> for start yeah for starters right. um he also made peter gabriel records and i mean he's 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 a, a monster but i remember being in the room with daniel lanois and playing and him talking about uh, being in a trance through mm-hmm. groove, and he would always talk about drums. He he used to say tops. I love your tops, meaning my my hat and snare. Oh, he would huh. always say to me, Mike, I love your tops. I love your top. I love the way you play tops. Huh? I never heard that yeah. expression. Before. Yeah, it was it was at the time I was I was just like, yeah, man, cool tops. But like I was in, in my head, I'm like, what the fuck does that even mean? But I, but I I could see his hands d- sort of doing the hi hat snare thing while he said it. So I was like, you know, obviously uh, you you're get like, it. oh, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get it. But I was just like, yeah, you know, my tops. My tops are great. Um, but uh, I I remember taking that with me and and through the years of like how important it is to truly entrance somebody. And one of the things that he said to me uh, also was when he was working with the jo- with U2 for the Joshua Tree. <clears throat> they would spend hours on trying to come up with a quote-unquote hit drum beat. Mm-hmm. A drum beat that was going to be part of part of a hit. Now I don't I don't I'm not a believer that that a a a drum beat can solely be a hit. I think that you need something behind it or in yeah. front of it to be a hit. We need a melody and some type of movement. But I do think that a drum beat, or, or excuse me, I do think without thought in your drums, the song will not be as big of a hit. I agree with that. I always, or, I like the saying, I don't, you know, I say it all the time, but I definitely didn't make it up. But but you can tell, you can tell when a, if, if the band has a great drummer, you can't really tell, but if it's a bad drummer, you can tell, right? So like, yes. If you have this great melody and you have a bad drummer, it's going to sound horrible. If you have a great melody with a great drummer, it just it sounds like a great melody to me. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and then and then there's there, there's the the gray area when you know a lot lots of people give Meg White shit, but 
the White Stripes would not be the White Stripes without that drummer. Yeah, yeah. You're not yeah. going gonna to put Vinnie Caliuta behind the kit with the White Stripes. Like mm-hmm. it's not, you know. Yeah, like you're, you're not going to get that same group. You're not going to shake your ass the same. It's not going to be as powerful. It's not going to be as cool. Right. So there's like, you know, you can give you can give that woman as much shit as you want, but that shit is bad ass. Mm-hmm. It's badass. Yeah. Like I like the white stripes. I've always like I was having this conversation with people uh, on Instagram about it and. I forget exactly what we were talking about, but something about like I was mentioning playing for the song and 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 they were like, why are you, you know, why are you hating on Meg White? I'm like, I'm not I'm not saying anything about Meg White. I'm just saying that she was right for the song. But like, I, I don't think anyone is like putting her on the Mount Rushmore of like the greatest drummers in the world. That's all I was saying. Oh, no. You know, but I'm like, she's she's great for, you know, she's it's just like if you put, you know, if you put Carter Beaufort uh into a different band he would sound like shit you know like but he sounds right. great in dave matthews band so uh right i don't of know where i don't know where i was going with that but no of course if you're into that kind of shit right but right. yeah, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um no i you know i i feel i feel like there there there's there's an importance um on both sides of the spectrum right i i, I think that there there's a call for someone playing something really outlandish and maybe over someone's head um in moments i think that they're you know like like whatever whatever the music is going to call for but interpretation and perception are such strange things man yeah yeah it's like such a it's such a weird thing like i you know i i think to myself all the time like what would those like what would my my early recordings have sounded like if it had been another drummer like what did those what would those dashboard records had sounded like or been they if wouldn't I have been what they ended up being. I think that's you know? The, you know, I think that's the beauty of it. I think that uh, I think that like creating something in the moment, like you're creating something that's never existed before, and to me that is so that's so powerful. And if if you take you out of that room and put me in there, then we would have created something different. And yeah. it may not have been, or probably wouldn't have been as good, or it wouldn't have had the same chemistry, or whatever the case may be. Um, so, so I agree. Like you're, there's a, a great song to me is the sum of all the parts. And if you take one of the things out and put something else in there, it might still be a good song, but it's not going to be the same song. That's just my take on it. I agree wholeheartedly, man. Uh, Yeah. It's, it's going to be different. It's just, and, and that, and that's it. Um, but I, I do feel like there, there was, um, something you touched on just a second ago with chemistry. Mm hmm. I feel like there the, chemistry is truly what makes art. I think that's I, what makes like real you. strong art, like real strong art. Like, of course there's all different types of art, but when it comes to like real strong, strong art in music, chemistry is everything. Like if, if, if sting and Stuart Copeland had never met, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it wouldn't have been the same, you right. know, if, if right. they had never called Neil Peart into rush would have never been the same. Like there's just like, there's a chemistry that happens that it is that is truly where the magic is and mm-hmm. i am so grateful that i've had those moments in my career where i i have felt even just in myself and this isn't anyone telling me like oh you guys have such great chemistry i just know that i felt that chemistry right like right. i felt like wow we're we're like we're on fire right now and this is something that's really special 
and it's continuing to happen right now in my career. And I, I'm given freedom in the studio, man. I mean, like, you know, it, but at the end of the day, when you're playing on an Avid Brothers record, man, like there, there's what, like, what are you going to fucking do on an Avid, on Avid Brothers song? Like, this like sweet, beautiful Avid Brothers song. Like you, you just want to like cradle it, man. You want to yeah. like coddle it and make it beautiful and make it sing, man. Like you, you, you have to be smart about the environment, but if you're smart and, and if, if you're, you know, if you feel like you can be in a, in a situation where you're granted leniency and you're granted this, like, um, you know, j just you be you, like, where are you really going to take that? And I think that that is the difference between people who are going to keep, get gigs and maintain them mm -hmm. and, those that are going to be jumping around from gig to gig and or simply unfortunately never finding a gig um i'm with you i'm with you I yeah agree. And, and for me it's just you know i i definitely had to learn i had i had to go through all the motions of that stuff and mm -hmm. i'm finally in a place man, where i feel like man anything that these guys throw at me I, i'm gonna i'm gonna know and if i don't know i am sure as shit going to figure it out yeah yep I'm going to find a way like, you know, that's what makes you a professional, my man. Uh, well, I appreciate that. So tell me about, tell me the name of the new record and tell people where they can find it. Okay. So, um, I've, I've got a moniker, which is paper mm -hmm. and I just put out an EP called two, which is Spanish for you. And it's also a play on words for the second release I've ever done. I like it. Um, and it's it's four songs, and it's on Spotify, it's on iTunes, it's on uh, what's it called, uh, Deezer. Mm -hmm. uh, there's all kinds of all of those platforms. If you just search for Paper Tu, it should pop up, or search for for Paper Sunbeam, which was the first record I ever put out, which was eight years ago. And um, it's all stuff that I've recorded in my studio. I've mix, you know, engineered it, mixed it, and um, played most of the instruments on it, and. Uh, it's that that's that's definitely become a very big passion of mine is just trying to write because i don't you know i don't get to write in my band like yeah, that's yeah, yeah that's not my that's not my role and mm -hmm. I, I honestly like I, I i couldn't like I, I would be embarrassed to show them my songs they're they're <laughs> they're like they're too good they're too good of songwriters um but but it, it's it, it's it's a place where i get to to go to be to just be be me completely if there's no one telling me what i should or shouldn't do or what right. sounds to use or not use i can do whatever the fuck i want i mean i have moogs and i have a poly 61 and i have you know all these plugins and i have an 808 and i have you know a, you know all, i have all kinds of shit in this studio there's guitars everywhere there's amps i've got drums for days like i can just create all day long man and i really so awesome. urge everybody I urge everybody in this time right now with what's going on, man, pull your guitar out of your case, dust it off, man, play, just pl make something, man, yeah. make something with your time. Yep. You know, it's so important right now. Like this is the time that you have. That's just, unfortunately we're locked in, man. But like, like, you know, we started this conversation talking about this and I feel like it, for me, it's been a blessing, man. Like it's, it's like, I, I need to, I need to get my shit together. Like seriously get my shit together. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like I, I, I want to be better at everything. Yeah. You know? And yeah. I, I have that time now. Like it's, it's the time is given to me. Like you don't have any responsibilities other than making sure your family's fed and making some art. Yeah. You know? Yep.
Like, I, go do that, man. Do it for sure. And do all the stuff that you've been putting off and, and you know, don't have time to do. Go listen to some music. Go practice. Go create some things. Yeah. Uh, check do out Mike's new record. Man. What's that? Yeah, do some push-ups. <laughs> Uh, listen to Mike's new record, go to his, go to his website, mikemarshmusic.com and I'll link up to everything in the show notes as well. Um, but Mike, man, one, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that you went from a, a situation where, where that you don't feel it was the best musically and, and now you're in a great situation. So I'm, I'm, that, that makes me happy to hear that. So I'm happy for you. Um, thank but you also man. just thank you for coming on, sharing your story, sharing your insights, uh, continued success in the future and please stay safe keep your family safe and all that and uh, I'll talk to you soon brother thanks Nick so much much love man I appreciate everything have a great one alright thanks brother you too bye bye some of us here are not like the others take what I speak and grace in me my brother one and only mike marsh you can check out drummersresource.com forward slash session 558 if you want to grab the show notes be sure to check out his new record and other than that please do me a favor stay in seriously stay safe listen to the experts and take care of yourselves take care of your loved ones and until the next podcast keep drumming and keep practicing and i'll be talking to you soon peace drummers resource is produced by revoice media Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me, edited by Justin Thomas, video editing by Tomas Shannon, and graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.